Welcome to this Niche Audiocast. I'm Angela Brown, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader at Niche. Today, you're going to hear a webinar that's been converted to a podcast so you can listen to it on the go. You can find all of the resources that are mentioned here and the original recording on the Enrollment Insights blog, which you can find at niche.bz insights. Enjoy! All right, it's 2.01, so why don't we go ahead and jump right in. Welcome, I'm Angela Brown, the Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for K-12 here at Niche. I'm thrilled that you're all jumping on today at a webinar in December of all times of year. We're going to go through some takeaways from our 2022 PK-12 parent survey. If you haven't had the chance to review the full survey results, that's not a problem at all. We'll touch on the highlights today. And then I've got a link and a QR code for you at the beginning and the end of our presentation so that you can take a peek. Before we get started, I want to cover some housekeeping items that tend to pop up both in real time and in our advanced questions. So we are going to be recording this and sending out that recording link with the slides tomorrow. So keep an eye on your inboxes for that. There will also be an audio version in the form of a podcast that you'll be able to find in the Enrollment Insights podcast feed on your favorite podcast app. If you have questions or comments today, you can go ahead and enter those in the box in your GoToWebinar console. And I'll try to get to those at the end after we cover a few advanced registration questions. And then finally, I'm experimenting with making these webinars a little bit shorter. So we're actually going to wrap up at 2.45 instead of 3 so I can give you guys some time back this afternoon. And now a little bit more about the survey. There's that QR code and link that I mentioned. So this is a third year that we've done this survey and we've seen a lot of changes and learned quite a bit since we launched it right as the pandemic was getting started. We had over 2,000 individual responses from parents and caregivers across the US. These families considered and chose a wide range of education options. So we've got a pretty nice representative range for all of you. And the survey ran from August 26th to October 2nd. So this is some very recent data that we're looking at today. And now we'll get into our takeaways. So our first takeaway, this was a big one, and that is that digital platforms are driving the school search and selection process for families. There's really not much of an argument against that anymore. So if you're looking to strike some things from your to-do list or you need a little bit of ammo to push back on some outdated tactics, this takeaway is just for you. So one of the new questions that we added this year, we actually added several to try to make this more actionable for all of you, was to ask where parents first discovered the schools that they compared for their children before they made a final enrollment change for this current fall. So this is really looking at parents in the awareness stage where they're not already familiar with a set list of schools and they're just getting started in the search process. So what we heard from our preschool families is that 34% started with Google search, that shouldn't be a surprise. 22% started with school search and review platforms, and for 21%, they really relied heavily on word of mouth. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the presentation. Then with our K-12 families, 25% started with Google search, and then word of mouth and school search and review sites were tied at 24%. So that same top three, just with a little bit of a switch in order. And this is one of those moments where I'm actually going to draw some attention to what you don't see here. We asked about these things, but things like billboards, direct mail, print ads, radio ads, they were very, very 
low on the list of ways that families first discovered the schools that they actually considered. So with the exception of word of mouth, which can also show up in different ways online, these are channels that are digital. That's, that's what we're looking at here. And the big difference between a parent who is actively searching on Google for a school and someone who happens to drive by a billboard on the highway or receive a postcard in the mail is intent. So that parent, that guardian on Google who's actively looking to make a change, that's the person that you really want to be in front of. And that's not to say that you should abandon all print entirely. But if you're short-staffed and you have limited re resources, which I know a lot of you do, what I'm hoping to do with this information is to help you prioritize based on data directly from parents who recently went through the school search process, because that's, that's what we're all about here at Ditch. And then as we get out of the awareness stage and move down the funnel, here's what we saw when we asked about the communications tools that influenced where families ultimately chose to enroll. So you'll see a bit of a jump in where parents started and then where they're the channels that they're coming back to as they're making that decision. So that's where there's a difference between the percentage of families that use search and review platforms for discovering schools, and then we see them starting to come back to those platforms as they're actively comparing schools that are on their short list. So 53% said reviews from other parents influenced their enrollment decisions. School search sites and websites were tied at 48%. 47% said visiting the preschools. 25% said emails from the schools, and then 24% said brochures and view books. So that's where you see that, that print material start to come back into play. It's further down the funnel. And then for our K-12 families, 54% said school websites influence their decisions, 48% said school visits. Everybody always says if we could just get them to campus, we would blow their minds. And that is actually true. That on-campus experience is very important. 40% said that school search and review sites influence their decisions. 24% said emails from the schools. 22% said social posts. So we see that come into play with our K-12 families. And then 16% said brochures and view books. So again, with very few exceptions, we're seeing that digital channels are playing the biggest role in converting families once they're ready to make an enrollment decision. So here's what you should do with all of this information, or my suggestions anyway. So for one, you want to make sure that you're investing in your presence on search and in optimizing your website. That's something we're always going to recommend. You also want to take ownership of your presence on search and review platforms and maintain it as well. So, you know, niche specifically gives you a lot of agency in terms of what you can control, both at a free level and a paid level. But you don't just want to, you know, set up your profile and then ignore it until you get to the end of the school year. It's something that requires nurturing and updates just like your website and your other platforms. It's also really important to narrow your focus on digital marketing. It's measurable. It's more actionable for prospective families. It gives them something to do. It's a lot harder to take action. You know, if you see a sign on the road or you hear something on the radio, I don't, I hope people are not pulling over and <laughs> writing down website addresses. Um, that would be dangerous. That's something that we'd, we'd like to avoid. Um, but digital is really actionable, and if you want to be able to see what you're getting for the money, it's a lot easier for you to do that with those channels. And then this last one, which I think is pretty related, is to resist the temptation or the pressure to invest in feel-good marketing. And what I mean by that is I talk to people all the time 
who are continuing to spend money on things that aren't necessarily working for them because members of their community like to see them. You know, and that's nice, it feels good, but it's not a strategic use of your budget or your time, and it's not serving your primary audience. So that's something to really kind of rethink. Takeaway 1B, and this is 1B because it's so closely connected to what we just looked at, and that is that your website is important. We just saw that, but you have to make sure that people actually see it. So we just saw that huge role that school and district websites play across age groups and converting families when it comes to enrollment. But what we also saw is that search visibility and third-party websites play pretty big roles in the awareness stage before families who don't already know you even get to those websites. And those platforms can lead families to strike you from the list before they even get to that beautiful website that you've invested in. So in this section, we're gonna walk through what parents see when they start the school search process and dig deeper into some of those opportunities you have to either lose or gain consideration from families before they get to that website that you've invested in. And this is an exercise I would actually recommend going through periodically so that you can get that perspective on what your prospective families are seeing, and just how much effort is required to get to your website. So starting with a private school search, and this is, this is a callback to what we just saw when it comes to search. This is a look at what someone would typically see if they were to do a localized broad search for the term private schools near me. And this is for me personally. This is local to where I live in Northern Virginia. And this is typically what happens when someone is early in the search process. They don't already have some level of familiarity with what their options are. So on the first page of Google, you'll typically start with this places view. And so you see three schools on the left side. There's a map view on the right. I've anonymized the schools to protect the innocent. Um, but you see that they've got reviews. Some of them have comments. You, there's a link to the website. There's directions. And if you click on more places, it'll take you to a longer list that, again, is based on your location. And this just underscores the importance of reviews because Shopping for schools is no different from shopping for cars or sweaters or any other purchase that we make at, in, at this point in time. And of course, more stars are likely to equal more clicks. You also have the ability to sort by rating, and that's something that could be good or bad, depending on the scenario in the school. And this is the same view for a broad public school search. So you see we've got a little bit more variation now in the Google ratings, but it's the same thing. You've got your top three schools website, directions, a map view, and the ability to see more options um, if you'd like to. So from here, and this is sticking with the public school search example, but it's very similar um, in the private school case. So as you scroll down, you stop seeing links for individual schools, and then you actually have to scroll past niche grade schools in US News before you even start to see websites that are affiliated with local schools. And this is at the district level. It's even It takes even more work to get to individual schools if you're not searching by name. And then at the bottom of the page, we have an ad for a private school. So between ads, the places section, and highly optimized third-party websites, even if you've made a significant investment in your school or your district site, there are actually multiple opportunities for a prospective family to scratch you off the list without ever even seeing it. So here's what you can do. And the headline here is that you have to put your best foot forward 
even earlier than your website. You have to make sure that you have a broader digital footprint that is serving you effectively. So establish a regular cadence for gathering reviews for members of your community. That's something we're always gonna recommend. We see here that that's important. Make sure that you're monitoring your position in search results and on other on, on online review sites. That's what I mentioned earlier. This is an exercise that you're gonna wanna do a few times a year just to see where things fall. Control what you can. Claiming and investing in your profiles on platforms like Google Business and Niche can be very helpful in managing the narrative around your institution. A common complaint that I've heard in the last couple of years is about missing Google reviews. So you have people that submit reviews and they seem to go into a black hole somewhere. So if you're having that problem, it's inconsistent across schools. Some schools are having this issue, some are not. You can visit the link on the slide to get some guidance and check on your review status. Takeaway two is that you can stop stressing out about your social media presence for now. And so we all know how important social media is for schools. We just saw that it does play a role for parents in deciding where to enroll their children. But there's also a lot of noise, probably more noise around social media than anything else, to be honest with you, when it comes to which channels schools need to use, and right now, there's a lot of chatter about Twitter, its new ownership, its implication for marketers. And the good news is that for prospective parents and students, we have a pretty clear picture of the channels that are driving enrollment decisions. So we're going to take a look at that next. So here we see the social media channels that impacted K-12 parents' enrollment decisions the most. And the, the data for preschool families was pretty similar, so I don't have a separate slide for that. But 36% said Facebook, 20% said Instagram. I don't think there are any surprises with those two. And 9% said YouTube, which I actually thought was interesting because typically when I hear people talking about social media in, in forums and in conversations, YouTube doesn't come up as much as a lot of other platforms. So if you are using a YouTube channel, but it's been slightly abandoned, there's an opportunity to revive it. And if you're not on YouTube and you've got the bandwidth, that might be something worth considering. But I also, again, I want to pause to take a look at what's not on this list. So for example, I've seen a lot of questions about LinkedIn in the past couple of years. And this is another one where if you have the bandwidth, it can certainly be a channel that's worth exploring. It can be great for thought leadership, for alumni engagement, for faculty and staff recruitment. But from what we're seeing, it's not an enrollment driver. If I recall correctly, I think families were at about 4% in terms of seeing, saying that LinkedIn was something that actually impacted their enrollment decision. So if you're not on LinkedIn, that's okay. It's fine. If you are, though, I just mentioned three areas where we've seen it to be very effective, especially in an organic capacity if you're not paying for ads. And then here we have our top social media channels for students as reported by parents. And this is for high schoolers because we found that high schoolers were the most involved in, in choosing the schools that they enrolled in. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But they're also candidly easier to connect with. You don't run into as many violations with social media terms and conditions as you would with a middle schooler and elementary schooler. Um, and you know it's easier to just connect with high schoolers. So 25% said that Instagram influenced their students' decisions, 12% said Facebook, and 11% said YouTube. Now the Facebook stat was a little surprising to me. It's probably surprising to you as well, since we're all hearing that you know if you 
don't live in a nursing home, you're not using Facebook, but that is incorrect. There is still some Facebook use that's happening out there. And YouTube pulled ahead a, a little bit from TikTok, which was at 9%, and that's something that we're anticipating will probably continue to change year over year. I don't think that lines up completely with the huge usage numbers that we're seeing with TikTok simply because students aren't using it a ton for this specific purpose yet. But I do think we're going to continue to see that increase. And when we look at our data of high school students who are searching for colleges, we see again that YouTube and TikTok are actually really close. So here's what to do with this one. For one, be aware of emerging channels, but don't get caught up. Don't get distracted by them. Don't start stressing as soon as you hear that there's a place that you need to be. I think we all remember Clubhouse and how everybody was getting the invites and there was a whole conversation about whether or not schools needed to be involved and how you could market on Clubhouse. And, and now, you know, here we are. No one's talking about Clubhouse anymore. So keep an eye on the on the pulse. You know, you want to make sure that you know what's going on, but be thoughtful before you panic and feel like you have to jump onto a new channel. Also, stay focused and keep an eye on your own engagement data. Benchmarking is great, but only you know where your families are. And so that is something that's really important. When it comes to spicing up your current channels, I bolded this one because with the current Twitter chaos in particular, I'm seeing a lot of questions about where to go next, where's everybody going, are you deleting your account? And to be honest, as an industry, I don't think we've actually mastered the channels that we're already more active in. And so knowing that Twitter is not necessarily a big enrollment driver, and there are lots of other ways to engage your current families, your donors, your alumni, et cetera. I'm not actually convinced that searching for a Twitter replacement is a good use of time. I think the better question is how can you assess your current suite of social channels and use them more effectively? And so instead, I would encourage you to take stock of what you have, focus on optimization, if you're not already using short form video, which I look at a lot of social channels on a day-to-day -day basis, and a lot of schools are not doing this, this is why TikTok is so popular. It's because short form video is a format that really resonates with people across age groups. So if you're not using Instagram Reels, if you're not doing YouTube Shorts, if you're not on TikTok, you know, that is something to consider. Um, but start with the channels that you're already using. Don't be afraid of emojis. On the district side, I actually see these much more frequently, but not so much on the private school side. And it's okay to loosen the tie and have a little bit on fun on social media. That's what it's for. Social media is meant to be social. So it's okay to relax a little bit on those channels. Get your students involved. I know this is something that causes a lot of anxiety for people. Um, but if you choose the right students, if you give them guidelines, if you have processes in place, you can unleash them on your social channels without things going completely awry. And we have seen in our data time and time again, students want to hear from other students. They want to hear from their peers. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, in the next section, actually, but that's really, really important. And then remarketing is a way that you can put your social media to work a little bit harder for you beyond just your day-to-day -day posting. And so with remarketing, you can re-engage in short based on a, pickle, a pixel that is installed on your website or your niche profile. We do remarketing as well. 
And once someone has visited, they can continue to see ads and, and content from your social channels, um, from your niche profile. If you use that for advertising, it'll literally follow them around the internet, but it's just a way to stay top of mind with your prospective families. Choosing your channels based on strategic priorities, that's another really big one. To go back to the LinkedIn example, if you're going into 2023 and you're like, you know what, we're really having a hard time recruiting teachers, or I'd really like to find a new way to engage our alumni, LinkedIn is great for both of those purposes. It all depends on what your strategy is and where you need to lean into outreach. That is what should inform what you're doing and where you're going, not some of the noise that you see on the internet. And then finally, this is also related, don't take on more social channels than you can effectively manage and measure. And that's true at the platform level, it's true at the account level. I know, because I've, I've been in this role, I've been on the other side where you're fielding requests from people who want a, a, an Instagram page for this and a TikTok channel for that. and you know, lots of requests come in. There's that external pressure at the institutional level to adopt these new channels. And the problem with that is the focus is on posting and content distribution, but not on measurement. And we're big data people here. I'm a big data person myself. And if you're just launching content onto the internet and you're not actually making sure that it's working for you, that it's effective, that it's connecting with your audiences, then there's no point. You're wasting your time. So really, really think about the measurement piece as you're adopting new channels. Next, number three, is that everyone needs both a prospective parent and student engagement strategy. So we know that students on an increasing basis are getting more and more involved in choosing the schools that their parents consider for them and where they ultimately enroll. So we wanted to quantify that. This was another new question we introduced this year. And we found that 60% of K-12 parents and 76% of high school parents said that their children played a role in choosing the schools that they enrolled in for this year. So having a plan for engaging prospective students, it's not a nice to have anymore. It's, it's pretty essential, especially for those older students. You have to earn their consideration and conversions just as much as you do with the parents. So here's a deeper look at that. Here's some information to hopefully give you an idea of where to start. So we talked about social channels. But we also ask parents about the other outreach tactics that influence their children's choices. And this is what we have reported by the parents and caregivers of high schoolers who changed schools this fall, since that's where we saw the highest level of student enrollment. So 39% said websites, 21 said school search and review sites. So yes, prospective students are looking at those as well. And 19% said emails from the schools. So I, I thought that one was pretty interesting. Social media posts and visits were closely behind email, so we definitely don't wanna forget about those. But I'm also willing to bet that most of the folks on the call don't have student-centric content on their websites or student-specific email nurture sequences. So that's something to really, really think about. And in our recent survey of high school juniors, I believe that came out in the fall, searching for and applying for colleges, email was actually the preferred communication channel for interacting with schools. So let's not forget about email. So as much as we talk about TikTok specifically for <laughs> prospective student engagement, 
as we've just seen, there are other channels that move the needle that many of you are already using. It's just a matter of being intentional in your outreach to students. So you, many of you might have personas for your prospective parents. If you don't already, I would encourage you to develop personas for your prospective students as well and make sure that you're including both demographic and psychographic information. So not just who they are, you know, age, potential feeder schools or school type, um, you know, household income, that sort of data, but also what do they care about? What are their interests? And how do those interests inform their connection with your institution and why they'd be interested in your institution. Incorporating prospective student content into your website, your nurture campaigns, as we mentioned, your events, and yes, your social channels, it's really important. Also, including current students and alumni in your review campaigns. So as you're soliciting reviews from members of your community, don't stop with parents. You know, include students, include alumni, Students want to hear from other students, right? So those reviews are really important. And we just saw that those review-driven platforms have, have a, a role with students as well. And then creating opportunities for your for students um, to hear from their peers on your, on your digital platforms is something that is also really important. And I've got a couple of examples for you, both on the digital side and on the event side. So these are from higher ed because colleges and universities they're all about student outreach. That's what they do all day, every day. And for the most part, they do this work really well. So the example on the left is a day in the life TikTok video. And I'm not going to play these because I'm trying to be mindful of time. Um, but it's a, it's a day in the life TikTok video where a West Virginia University student literally walks you through a day in her life on campus, including her trip to Starbucks, hence the screenshot with the cup. And then on the right, we have an example from the University of Chicago, which is using the video real estate on its niche profile to summarize its core curriculum. So they're taking something that can be a bit complex and difficult to understand. It's probably something that they get a lot of questions about in the admissions process. And they put together a video with two students talking about the core curriculum, but also things that they've taken and how they've used it and what they've done. And so what I love about these videos is they're not super polished. Your videos don't need to be overly produced. Videos can be really expensive. I see lots of questions about equipment and all of that. And what's really resonating with people right now is those videos that are short, shot on a phone, you know, not super overdone, you know, in the private school world, which I come from, I think we're all familiar with the drone video of the campus from, from the air and the classical music, and that's fine. But if you're 15, that's not something you're probably going to connect with as much. So definitely think about that. And they're short. The TikTok is 60 seconds. The niche profile video is a minute and 49 seconds. So your videos don't have to be super long either, especially when it comes to student engagement. And then on the event side, these are just a few quick ideas for engaging prospective students in person. And the overarching goal here is to create some informal opportunities in addition to, you know, capital A, capital E admissions events to allow your prospective students to engage with current ones and get a feel for what it will actually be like to be part of your community. So I'm a big fan of Ask a Student events, whether they're virtual or in person, you could do both. Um, but these are just small events where prospective students have an, an opportunity to do an AMA or an Ask Me Anything with current students. And that can be 
it tends to work best when it's very topical focused because that keeps things from getting awkward with the kids, right? So if you are having a specific event around what it's like to be a student athlete or the fine arts program or STEM or the list goes on and on depending on what type of institution you are, that's a good way to just create some intimate but informal opportunities for students to talk to each other and to take the adults out of it. You know, the adults can provide guidance, but it's okay to let them talk to each other. Student ambassador-led tours for prospective students are very common in the private school world, but not as much in the district world. So that's something that you can kind of steal. Opportunities to attend a class for prospective students during admission events. So I've seen this done with parents where the parents can kind of break off and choose a class to take with a teacher um, and other parents where they go through a lesson or complete a specific task. But that can also be helpful for prospective students. I know that we do shadow days and they have the opportunity to walk around with a current student. But just like parents, there is something to going through the admissions process and being able to kind of get a read for who else is going through that process with you and thinking, you know, are these people that I want to go to school with? Are they similar to me? Are they different? What's attracting them to the school? And having some conversations with people that could potentially be your peers in a different way. For younger students, mixed group play dates can be great for prospective and current students, kind of mixed together. And inviting students to attend age-specific events like math nights, if you have literacy nights, carnivals, the list goes on and on. But it doesn't just have to be a formal enrollment-driven event. It can be something that's already on your calendar um, that you can just invite people to once they're a little bit further on in the process. And then our last takeaway is your current families are one of your biggest marketing assets. So one of the things that came through loud and clear in this year's survey was the massive role that your current families play in recruiting prospective families. And even if you have a small marketing budget, that is something that you can use to your advantage. So looking at how other parents influenced enrollment decisions and starting with preschoolers, 65% said reviews from parents on school search and review sites influenced their decisions. 54% said parents in social media groups, blogs, or online forums. That's a big one. And 52% said parents of students currently enrolled at the schools that they considered. On the K-12 side, 60% said reviews from parents on school search and review sites, 55% said parents of students currently enrolled at the schools they considered, and 50% said parents in social media groups, blogs, or online forums. So the same top three, just in a slightly different order, um, but all of this speaks to the role that other parents play in driving those decisions. So in terms of what you should do with this one, Definitely pay attention to those blogs and forums and, you know, mom's groups on Facebook. I know that they can be really frustrating. It can be hard to keep on top of them. You don't own them. You can't necessarily respond to dispel some mythology that might be popping up over the, you know, about your institution. But they can be really helpful in just giving you another lens to gauge what the word on the street is about your school. And they can help you to be prepared to address any negative perceptions that might pop up during the admissions process or even from your current families. You know, current and prospective families look at those things. So it helps you to avoid being caught off guard if there's, if there's something out there about your school that's not accurate. And to know how you might need to tweak your marketing messaging to combat some of that. And then leaning into social proof, we talked a lot about this, but 
gathering testimonials regularly, but also incorporating them into multiple marketing channels. So you don't just have to get a review for a great schools or a niche or private school review and then leave it there. If you have something that's really solid, you can repurpose that content on your website, in your email comm flows and social media campaigns. There are a lot of different things that you can do with that content. And then having a formal parent ambassador program, but you can also keep it simple. It doesn't have to be a massive undertaking. You can make it easy for the parents. Don't have too many meetings. Don't have too many commitments. Be very clear about what you need them to do, whether it's leading tours or engaging with prospective families, connecting with feeder schools, whatever the case may be. Just have very clear expectations. Definitely make sure that you have a paid staff member who owns the program. Having volunteers lead volunteers can lead to chaos in a lot of situations, so be careful with that. And be intentional about who you invite to participate. You wanna make sure that these are people who are very coachable, who are supportive of your institution, and that they effectively represent your institutional identity. And so now it's time, I told you I was gonna run through this quickly for our Q&A. There's that QR code for you again and the link for the survey results if you'd like to take a deeper dive. I am gonna start with some questions you received in advance, as I mentioned, and as a disclaimer for those of you who might have submitted advanced questions or who did it just now, um, we'll typically try to focus on questions that benefit the broader group. So if you have a question about something that's super specific or we don't get to you um, before we run out of time at 2.45, you can email me separately. My email is on the screen for you here. I would love to hear from you. I'm happy to help in whatever way I can. So now let's jump right in. First question is, which Google Ads keywords seem to have the best results for private schools, and what is a good way to track conversions on Google Ads campaigns for K-12 private schools? So we could have an entire session talking about Google Ads, but I'll try to keep this brief, and I, I pulled this one in because it actually, the answer benefits all of you, regardless of school type. So depending on where they are in the funnel, parents and caregivers are using different terms. So parents in the top of the funnel and the awareness stage, as we saw, tend to use broad terms like private schools near me, best private schools near me, public elementary schools near me, but they might also use search terms that relate to specific areas of emphasis or needs for their children. So they might also search for STEM schools near me or schools serving students with learning differences. And so one route that you can take that I would actually recommend as a place to start is to use your own website data to see which phrases and search terms families are already using to get to your website and incorporate those into your SEO and Google Ads strategies provided that they're relevant. Another thing that you can do is use a tool like SEMrush. We actually use that here. It does have some free options and some paid options, but you can use that to find, to identify volume around keywords. To, so you can actually see how many people month over month are searching for specific things. Um, so you can find keywords that you might want to surface ads to. Um, and those should really be driven by your institutional brand and your unique strengths as a school. So you don't want to try to connect your ads to things that aren't actually relevant. That's gonna frustrate you know, your prospective families or your users. And you also don't wanna spend money on bidding on branded keywords. So don't spend money or buy ads against your school name or your district name because people who are searching for those words already know you and you don't wanna pay for those clicks. That's not great. 
Um, also, from, from a conversion measurement standpoint, standpoint, to answer the second question, Google will tell you your conversion rate at the ad level um, when you log in as you're monitoring your ads. But if you want to track who from your Google Ads is taking specific actions on your website, you can do that through Google Analytics or through your CRM system. So that was a pretty high-level overview, but hopefully that was helpful. The next question is, how important is the viewbook in the selection process? So we'll unpack that a little bit. We did have some data about that earlier in the presentation. Um, as a reminder, about 16% of our responding families said that viewbooks influence their enrollment decisions. So I definitely wouldn't rule them out. They just weren't the most important thing. One thing that I often tell people is that if you're going to continue to invest in certain print materials, look at ways to make them more customized and relevant. So in higher ed, for example, a lot of schools have switched to digital view books, which some of you may have heard me talk about before, that can be customized to a student or family's interests based on filling out a quick form, and those are much easier to maintain and update after the initial launch than a traditional printed piece. They're also more cost effective because they don't require as much legwork, you know, where you've got a two to three year shelf life and then you have to start the whole process all over again. There are some companies out there that can create very customized printed pieces using variable data printing, but for view books in particular, that can be cost prohibitive for a lot of schools, so that's something to sort of be mindful of. Um, but all of that is to say that view books do definitely still have a place. I would just try to focus on making them feel more customized and tailored, especially as you think about the experiences for millennial parents and Gen Z students. And I think that's also an important distinction just for, for reference. Gen Z right now is between the ages of 10 and 25. So you have to make that distinction between parents and students. I've seen some stuff about Gen Z parents and that's not too much of a thing yet. So be mindful of that. Next question, what do parents cite as the number one reason they are moving from public to private school? And this is another one I pulled because I think it's helpful for everyone to hear in general. We did not ask this question specifically, and the parents who responded represented a lot of different school types in terms of what they considered and what they ultimately chose. But I would also say that our data has really shown us, and another things that we've seen out there in the market that parent desires and priorities are so fluid. I'm not sure I could find a parent that would be able to pinpoint one thing that caused them to move from one type of school to another. But we did ask what would cause a family to change schools without relocating. And for K-12 families, the top factors were academic opportunities, social challenges for their children, and campus safety. And that, that third one, I think it, that also surfaced as a top priority for families as they were looking for schools in the fall. And I think that coming on the heels of, unfortunately, um, the school violence incident in Uvalde, Texas, it was very top of mind. Um, so that just goes to show you how things happening in the news in real time can have an influence. And then there are some of these more evergreen things because we've seen academic opportunity and, and social issues pop up in the past. Um, so it's complex. All of that is to say that it's, it's very complex. And for everyone who hung on for the Q&A, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Um, again, my email is angela.brown at niche.com. Feel free to reach out if you have a question I didn't get to. 
If there's some more granular information that you're looking for from this survey, of course, we hit on the high notes, but I'm happy to help you pull something specific if you need it. Um, and so I wish all of you a happy holiday season, a great new year, and I'll see you next year. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.